Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. Today I have Charlie Dewberry back with me to talk about the careers of two philosophers. We're talking about Locke and Berkeley, continuing on in our theme that we've had the last couple of episodes, looking at epistemology, the study of how we know things. Welcome, Charlie. Yeah, thank you, Gil. We're going to cover two philosophers today. Their epistemological works don't get read in any great detail in the freshman and sophomore curriculum. Yeah, that's correct. So we're going to talk about them, and in a second I'll have you talk about the books in which they discuss these ideas, but we're going to talk about them because they are important background for the thinking at the time and Reed's project and Hume's project, and we'll be talking about them soon, and so we wanted to make sure that we had that background. So... Charlie, how about you start out by telling us about Locke and what's his his situation, his project in life, and then if you could give us a sense of what his big epistemological work is and starting to get into some of his ideas. Okay, well, that's a big topic, sure. but <laughs> but anyway, John Locke is a very interesting character. First, we know more about him as a political theorist, so he wrote a treatise on government, which we know well as it was incorporated pretty heavily into our original documents. But he was also a medical doctor. He was trained in medicine. And what's really interesting about Locke is medicine was at a point where it was going to abandon an Aristotelian framework or an ancient framework. It was abandoning the idea of Galen's theology of how to do medicine. So a medical education was about the theory of the book. And Locke, along with a guy named Sydenham, rejected all of that. And they said, we ought to be studying patients. We ought to be looking at patients only and tracking symptoms and figuring out by trial and error what works and doesn't work. And they were called the empirics. And this is where we get empiricism, largely from is from the medical doctors being called empirics. So he's also carving out medicine, our modern view of medicine. He was a, a tutor for a statesman's son, and he also wrote things for that statesman. So he had a broad career. So his work that is primarily concerned with epistemology, what is that? And let's start talking about his ideas. In the okay. Book. It's an essay concerning the, I think it's called The Understanding of the Human Mind or something close to that. And he wrote it over a period of about 30, 40 years. And it's in four books that were, as I say, written over decades. and. It's not all of the same piece, which makes it interesting. Um, but the basic ideas of Locke are fairly straightforward. In his view, we start out with a blank slate, nothing. So when a baby's born, there's nothing in the mind. And so, in other words, all our knowledge comes from sense experience originally. 
And he also has an atomistic view of this, that it's all simples that come, like patches of light or a sensation of smell or taste. And then we composite them together. So it's a very mechanical framework, and it's also a very reductionistic, atomistic. It's breaking it down into the simples and then putting them together. And so in his view, all our knowledge originates then from ideas. And so this is in contradistinction from Descartes. So he's starting with, Locke is only starting with things that you can experience. And all your knowledge is built up from that. So his picture, you could imagine a cartoon or a film of some kind that was trying to catalog kind of a baby's experience, right? Mm -hmm. At first, you would just have just bright, light colors. Mm -hmm. And over time, you might get a mother's chin or nose or something of that sort. Mm -hmm. And as time goes on, the baby has more data Mm -hmm. that they then use to finally be able to see their mother's whole face. They begin to put together what's in the room. Maybe they have a mobile or something that's spinning above them, and they gain more clarity as they're going through their development. Yeah, that's true. One of the things that's helpful, though, to keep in mind for Locke is what you're aware of is only the ideas in your mind. And so when we see patches of light, it's primarily ideas in our mind. Mm. So this is a, a representational theory of epistemology, that, when, that these ideas mediate the objects mm. that are outside of us. So I actually have to gain some kind of understanding of color, for instance. I'm not... It's not as if I'm dealing with raw experience. Mm -hmm. I have the experience of the light, and we've talked about this in other contexts. The idea of a blank slate is that it's something on which the world can make something, right? Mm -hmm. We talked about this during our science episode. Mm -hmm. And so that light would leave his, he uses that word impression, and then I have that idea in my mind, that representation of color or whatever, Mm -hmm. and then I start gaining all of these different impressions get made on my mind as I, if I'm the baby, as I'm spending more time with light or the room or the face of my mother or whatever, and over time I have enough things scratched into that blank slate that I can then start to make sense of those things. Yes. Uh-huh. So you can, yes, form complex objects. The other thing that's interesting with this view is you can also construct imaginary things like mm-hmm. unicorns. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting with Locke's theory is, yeah, but a uniform can only be made from simples you already have. Mm-hmm. So you're making you can make a composite by putting things together differently than you've seen them together before, but you can't have an impression or you can't have a piece that you haven't received as a simple. Right. 
Well, there's something to that. Maybe it's not stating the whole case, but as we think about art that might depict monstrous creatures, Mm. right? What's the common things that monstrous creatures tend to have? Their eyes or their teeth are in the wrong place. So you're just taking ideas that you already had, and then you're messing with them so that they look wrong. Right. But you're not creating a fundamentally new sort of thing. Right. So it makes intuitive sense when you encounter Locke to go, oh yeah, that does make sense. The unicorn came from narwhals and a horse and somebody put those together and there you go. Yep. Yeah. So it does make a great deal of sense. So given that that seems somewhat intuitively obvious... What are some issues that you have with his perspective? Or do you think that we need more information about kind of his picture of how things get put together? I think first, I'd want to start with an observation that notice that he's starting really in the same place Descartes is, meaning we're going to start by looking at the mind. Yeah. Is... So that's interesting. He's starting with Descartes, but of course this empirical move that you start with a blank slate and everything comes by impressions. That's not so much Descartes as we've right. talked about before. Right. So this is starting where Descartes did, but this is a whole different framework. Right. Now, and I also want to give him credit that it's obviously very true that most of all of the knowledge we have does come from experience. Right. If I've never tasted a strawberry, I don't know what they taste like. Right. Or if I've been blind from birth, try to describe a color to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can't be done. Right. So I want to set Locke up here as is actually a pretty good start in many ways. Yeah. The other part is, although he says what we know are ideas, in Locke's mind, all our ideas, though, are caused by objects, things in the world. Right. And so he's commonsensical enough that he's going to accept that. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, so he asked me about a critique. I think the fundamental critique is that, one, our mind doesn't work mechanically. So this whole idea that it's mechanical. Mm -hmm. And secondly, this reductionism that we're going to reduce everything down to simples. That doesn't actually jive very well with our experience. So at this point, those are my two critiques. Other philosophers make other critiques of it. Just to go into a little bit of what you're saying here, our experience tends not to be of simple things. We experience complex things. And then as we're talking about those things or as we're thinking about those things or whatever, we can break those things into simpler sorts of categories Mm -hmm. like color or how it takes up space or whatever. And Locke is contending that those sorts of things are the things that we pay attention to first. Mm -hmm. Well, another piece of Locke is, I mean, on one hand, he's pretty commonsensical. So you read it in your responses. Well, yeah. Of right. course it's like this. But actually, when you start looking at the details, it's this is pretty ambiguous, or yeah. I'm not sure it actually works quite like this. Yeah. So there's a lot of those kind of responses sure, sure. in looking at Locke. I'm sure when uh, we get to read in this podcast, 
we'll have a lot to talk about Locke because he's one of Reed's uh, focuses Mm -hmm. as Reed is pursuing his project. So, John Locke, he is famous for his blank slate. Sometimes Mm -hmm. that is referred to as the tabula rasa, Mm -hmm. which is just the Latin for blank slate. We get the word erase from the same place Mm -hmm. we get that word rasa, and a tabula is a a table, right, or a flat surface that you can write on. And then he has this atomic picture of things. Let's set Locke aside for a moment. We do want to talk about Locke's relationship to science in a little bit. Okay. But let's first set up Barclay and his epistemological project. And before we get to that, let's just set up Barclay, period. Where is he? What's his situation? And what are his concerns? And what's his big book about how we know what we know? Okay. Barclay was born in the late 1680s in Ireland. He went to Dublin at 15. And by the time he was 20, he was a priest in the Protestant church. Then he went to London, and his project was he wanted to start a college in Bermuda to train the sons of plantation owners and also natives. And so that's what he wanted to do. And initially, they granted him the money. And then he went to the New World and got to Bermuda and said, oh, this isn't really going to work very well. And plantation owners in the Americas are not going to send their sons to Bermuda. So then he decided he wanted to build it in Rhode Island. And anyway, so then he goes back to the crown, and the money doesn't come. So here's his lifelong work that he wanted to do. And he's in London waiting to see if the money comes, and he's appointed as the bishop of (laughs) And anyway, he takes it seriously. He's definitely a a Christian, and he's a very opinionated Christian with a very interesting project. So his real interest to begin with was mathematics, looking at vision, the geometry of vision. And what he's really interested is distance size and how we do those kinds of things. And he was probably the first, as far as I know, other people did optics, but they weren't interested in that question of everything looks two-dimensional and stuff. Well, how do we actually, how do we understand distance? How does the geometry of that actually work? Well, he worked it out. So his main work, his main book is about that. So... His main work really isn't epistemology, pretty much, but it's how vision works. But his epistemology, and that's what he's most well-known for, not his math and his optics, is he took Locke's framework and basically used Locke's framework to make the argument that there is no such thing as a material world. We don't have material bodies. Everything is immaterial. It's just idea. So that's a big sort of change. That's not as intuitive as Locke's idea is. 
So how does he get from Locke's framework, as you mm-hmm. were saying, how does he get from there to there is no material world? How, what are the moves that he makes uh-huh. to get there? Well, it's actually very simple. Is Locke made the argument that w- what the mind knows are ideas. And the things in the world, the things that are outside those ideas, they resemble the ideas. Well, he makes the obvious observation, but an idea is not material. So if an idea is not material, then it doesn't resemble a material substance. Mm-hmm. So that's a meaningless concept. Right. You're, you're assuming that the objects in the world resemble the ideas. Mm-hmm. You're just taking that as a given. How could you ever know? Mm-hmm. Because if, ev- if everything your mind has ever interacted with is ideas, how, how could you get to knowing that the ideas resemble the objects? So he's raising the issue of, okay, we have ideas, but now we're creating this gap mm-hmm. between us and the material world. And he's right that given Locke's framework, that is a problem. Right. So uh, Barclay is famous for, this might not be the exact phrasing of what he says, but his philosophy has been boiled down to, to be is to be perceived. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about <laughs> that in the context of this idea of there not being mm-hmm. a material world? Yeah. So with a straight face, Barclay says, what we mean by the existence of a table is, I see it. Now, when I leave, is the table there? I don't know. But when I come back, I perceive it. Therefore, it exists. That's what we know. Right. Barclay thinks of our experience, I think, much in the way that for instance, video games function. Mm -hmm. You can have a character moving through a virtual world, but while it's in the virtual world, it would take too much of the computer's hardware to have a whole world in there. Mm -hmm. So it's just one room that Mm -hmm. exists for the moment, and then the character moves into the next room, and the computer loads that room Mm-hmm. And then takes away the first room, right? Because that's the only way you can have it work. And so, for Barclay, there's this similar idea. I don't know if the rooms that I'm not perceiving at the moment persist in the sense of they're made out of stuff, they mm-hmm. have substance whenever I'm not in them. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about that analogy, there is some sense in which those rooms are stored. Mm-hmm. What does Barclay think is going on with those other places or things that I'm not perceiving while I'm not perceiving them? Well, we also have the issue of if I'm not material, then exactly what am I even in this picture? But in his picture, all of it exists in the mind of God. That what he's doing is God is just thinking 
Barclay, this is ingenious. Mm -hmm. Remember, he's a bishop, right? And he's a Christian, and so his argument is: this is how much the world is dependent on God. Is all of the whole world is actually just in the mind of God? Yeah, and that's the whole. In that, I'm just a little piece of this, and this is just my little mind working within the mind of God. So there's the famous quote about, if a tree falls in the forest, can anybody hear it? And if there's no one to hear, in one sense, well, there is no sound. But that's true. But for Barclay, on the other hand, yeah, but there's still God. So there's how that works out. So... The intriguing thing here is, yes, Barclay is explaining our everyday experience in this outlandish, crazy fashion, and he's calling it the common sense view. Right. <laughs> so part of Barclay's project and Locke's project is, as is the case with so many of the thinkers that we're dealing with in these past couple of episodes, is they are reacting to the Copernican revolution. And you have a totally new way of thinking about how the world works. And there is a temptation whenever you realize that the way you've been thinking about something is wrong, there's a temptation to go, well, then I can't know anything for sure. And both Locke and Barclay are concerned about that sort of skepticism. So let's take a minute now and talk about Berkeley and Locke and how were they trying to deal with the problem of skepticism as it's reacting to the Copernican revolution? Well, for Locke, the question is, what's the origin of what we know? That's the first step. And by claiming that it's sense experience, how can you deny that? So that's his starting point. So for for Locke, as long as you have impressions, then you're justified in claiming to know. So for example, then Locke would look at words and say, well, as long as these words are associated with ideas that are either reflections out of me or from sense experience, then they make sense. I know those. Why? Because if you're going to deny sense experience, nobody can do that. Right. So essentially, that's the way his project is aimed at limiting skepticism. Now, he is skeptical about stuff that you're claiming metaphysics where we're claiming a lot. Now, he isn't, he isn't what I would call a purist when it comes to that. He'll accept quite a lot of metaphysics, but the really wild speculative stuff, that's sure. off limits. And that's how he makes it off limits. There's a lot of epistemological thinking at this time that is a reaction to scholasticism, Mm. which famously has the argument about how many angels dance on the head of a pin. And everybody who is making epistemological arguments wants to take those kinds of questions off the table because we got stuck talking about those sorts of issues and we didn't even realize that 
the universe was working in a different way than we thought right under our nose. Well, you ask about Barclay as well, then. Sure, so sure. I was going to give Barclay's yes, answer. Yes. I don't think Barclay's really concerned about the skeptic. Yeah. What Barclay's concerned about is he's a Christian, and he's concerned about this new science that it's leading to atheism. And how it's leading to atheism is everything in the world is material according to this science. And if everything is ultimately material, then God's out of the picture. God doesn't have a role. So Barclay's project, I would argue, is from a Christian perspective to point out that fundamentally God's the most important thing in this universe. Right. And there is no material world. So in a sense, he's saying that a science that focuses on the material world is atheism. So his project is really a defense of Christianity against the whole new science aimed at understanding the material world. Yeah. So it's not aimed at skeptics. Sure. That's where he's going. Yeah. So Locke is, in some sense, countering skepticism. He thinks that we need to put appropriate limits to what we're understanding. Mm -hmm. But Barclay's more concerned with defending Christianity against atheism mm -hmm. and not so much worried about people being skeptical. Right. People are going to decide to do that or not. Right. Well, that's my reading of him yeah. primarily. But as I say, what's really unique about this is he uses Locke's framework to do it. Right. And Locke's framework has been accepted as the new science, largely. There's one really unique story that's well known about, about Barclay that I absolutely love because it's just how good his argument is. So supposedly Samuel Johnson was listening to a sermon in church for two hours on Barclay. And he got so agitated that he came out of church and supposedly kicked the cornerstone and said, I refute Barclay thus. And the irony, of course, is that's no refutation right. of Barclay, right. because in Barclay's view, it's just ideas in the mind. Right. Well, let's take this example and spend some time with it so that people really get a handle on how to think about things the way that Barclay's thinking about things. Because in a lot of ways, it's very similar to how Hume is thinking about things. Hume just doesn't think that God is a part of it <laughs> in right. any case. Well, so Barclay got rid of material stuff, and you're going to some spiritual stuff yeah. on the same ground. Right. He's going to use Barclay's argument. Right. To get rid of God. <laughs> but let's move back to, yeah. we have Johnson kicking the cornerstone uh -huh. and saying, I refute Barclay thus. So let's just spend some time thinking about this and why it doesn't disprove Barclay. Because we do have popular scientists nowadays, people like Bill Nye or Neil deGrasse Tyson, who will scoff at philosophy and these mm -hmm. sorts of ideas and they'll say well just drop a hammer on your foot mm -hmm. and that'll show you that there's a material world mm -hmm. well the problem with that is you have an inclination to tie your physical body 
or what you experience as your physical body and the pain that you would experience from stubbing your toe on the cornerstone or dropping the hammer on it mm-hmm. as having some kind of material reality. Mm-hmm. And what Barkley is pointing out is, well, look, you could, like, when you have pain, that's not something that happens in the cornerstone, Mm. right? It's not something that happens in the hammer. Mm -hmm. It happens in your mind, Mm -hmm. right? right. If you're not conscious, maybe you'd wake up, but (laughs) if you're not conscious and the hammer dropped on your foot or whatever, there wouldn't be pain anywhere. Right. Well, Yes, there would. There the would. idea of pain would sure. be in your mind, because sure. that's the point here, is this first starting point, which started with Descartes, which said, we're going to focus on the mind. Right. That's the thread that's continuing yes. here, and why these guys are called Cartesians, Right. is you have to think about the primary reality that you're aware of is just the ideas in your mind. Right. And so for, for somebody like Barclay, okay, you can picture yourself kicking a cornerstone. You can picture yourself that the next thing you're going to feel is pain. Well, but remember, we're just thinking about ideas in your mind. Right. It's just the pain just followed the right. kicking the cornerstone. We, we are... As Hume will point out, somebody could take a baseball bat and swing it at my head, mm-hmm. and we're inclined to think of that in material terms. But mm-hmm. his point is, well, what really are you experiencing there, mm-hmm. right? You see a body that looks like a person, right? And we could describe that in Locke's symbols if you wanted, right? but we're not going to just for the sake of being able to talk through the example. Mm-hmm. that has a wooden object <laughs> of a certain size. And then as they swing on you, that object gets bigger and the angle mm-hmm. changes and it gets bigger, 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 bigger. And then you feel pain mm-hmm. in your head. And both Barkley and humor saying, what's to keep you from experiencing those things without there being material? There's your sort of vulgarly, believing that Mm -hmm. there's something causing that to you right aside from how god is orchestrating things in the world right Right. if god wanted you to experience that sort of pain he doesn't need a material object right in order for that to be the case that's right or to put it a different way to take it a little bit away from a, a God controls every atomic moment. God is preserving the laws of physics, right. as it were. Mm-hmm. And those laws of physics are still going to interact in the way that you're expecting, but you don't actually need matter right. for those consequences to follow on the things that cause them. And that's Barclay's point, is God thinking is essentially the cause that puts the two ideas together. It's not a material cause. And with a straight face, 
he's saying, well, I think this is the common sense view. This is what every vulgar human being means. Right. And of course, <laughs> he's got to be laughing all the way. But the problem with this is, this is not easy to refute. Right. The edges of it and where you start to see problems, although you might not know the solutions to those problems, is, for instance, he has an example of hold an ice cube in one hand and heat your hand over a fire in the other hand and then put your hands into water. Mm-hmm. Well, what temperature is the water? And uh, that is some place where you start to go, there's something, he uses that as an argument for all of those things being ideas in your mind. Mm-hmm. And can he explain that in terms of the consistency of God thinking? Yes, but there are insights that are going to come from Reed in particular. Who's, there are things that we gain from there being objects in the world that we're interacting with that we're missing, mm-hmm. even though that's not obvious mm-hmm. when we make everything about ideas in right. our mind. Well, one of the interesting pieces here, too, is early, Thomas Reed thought Barclay was right. Yeah. So Reed, in fact, Reed's whole discussion of vision and stuff just takes off from Barclay. Right. And so, yeah, Reed initially was very sympathetic with Barclay. Yes. That idea of resemblance Mm -hmm. is going to be very important for Reed. Mm -hmm. Because Barclay's point is, those things don't resemble each Mm -hmm. other, right? A hammer isn't like pain, Mm -hmm. right? The cornerstone isn't like pain. Right. And so what are we doing talking about these resemblances? Mm -hmm. Which for Locke is the table that I have an idea of, and that's mainly what my mind is interacting with. That resembles this object out in the world in some fashion. And uh, that's, as far as it goes, seems pretty intuitive, but that's not intuitive of things like pain. But yes, for Locke, the primary qualities like extension and hardness, those in his mind do resemble. Right. And you can break them up. But as you were talking about with Barclay in the case of what are called secondary qualities, all of those Locke thinks are in the mind as well, like color, taste, all the things that depend on our physical condition in a sense, that those are actually in... Heat, probably. the heat example you gave. So Barclay just picks up on that as well. But his point is, well, see, I'm with you with the secondary qualities that they're all in the mind. But weren't those primary qualities of that matter? Those were just all in your mind the same way. Right. That is that that's another way of getting at right. his argument against Locke. So extension is things take, just taking up space. Mm-hmm. Locke is going to say, well, I can tell it. Ta- like, I can move my hand along the edge of the table, and mm-hmm. I can tell it takes up space. Mm-hmm. And so that must be something that is 
a primary quality of the object, mm-hmm. right? That's something I can't get around about the object. Mm-hmm. But things like color, like you were saying earlier, right? If I'm blind, I don't ever understand color because I mm-hmm. never experience color. Mm-hmm. Things like smell or sound or heat, I need to be able to sense those things in order to have an idea of what those things are. Mm-hmm. And Barkley is just skipping through the whole thing and saying, yeah, but the primary things right. are also ideas. Right. And there's no object there anyway. There's no resemblance to right. anything. Yeah. The permanence of objects, if you will, is because God is consistent and good. Mm-hmm. And so even though I might leave this table in this room and walk away from it, when I come back, it'll still be here. Because God isn't setting out to confuse me. Right. And if it turns out that some of my colleagues moved the table, (laughs) Mm -hmm. there is a causal explanation. I can work back to why did things change. Right. The world isn't random. Right. And that is, at least in some ways of reading Hume, not a guarantee. Mm. If there is no guarantor of reality, the way that Barclay has God guaranteeing the world, mm-hmm. then why should we expect things to right. remain in the way that they So that is the thing about Barclay's argument is he has described our everyday experience in a way that's perfectly coherent and, as I say, very difficult to refute right. given the framework. We are containing ourselves a little bit because (laughs) Thomas Reed is one of our famous philosophers, and he talks at length about Barclay's ideas and and what Barclay's picture is missing. But we're going to wait on that until we talk about Reed in a later podcast episode. Okay, so we've talked about the important ideas, the main frames for these two philosophers, and we've addressed a little bit their views of skepticism or atheism, as the case may be. Let's talk a little bit about their takes on science, because that Mm. is one of the big developments of the time, and how do they think that they are furthering or contributing to this new picture of science as it's emerging? Mm -hmm. I want to just note that you were talking earlier about Barclay's work on optics, And if you look at philosophers or scientists, as we might call them now of this time, there are a lot of folks who end up working on optics. Mm -hmm. Newton writes a book on optics. Locke has his own work that's on optics. Descartes has one as well. Descartes has one on optics. And you can understand why optics becomes so interesting in lieu of the Copernican Revolution Mm -hmm. is because as we've been saying over and over again, it still looks like the sun is going around the earth. Mm -hmm. Our experiences of the sun rising and setting, not of us spinning around Mm -hmm. as the sun is staying mostly in the same place. So the science of optics is of interest because we have to account now for our perspectives on things. Mm -hmm. And, that will contribute to our picture of how the world works because if we can understand why things might appear differently than they actually are, 
that's going to contribute to our picture of how the world works. Mm -hmm. So, but aside from that specific instance of a focus on optics and how are we thinking about how the world is put together, what are Locke and Berkeley doing in terms of their thinking about this new science that's taking shape and how are they contributing to it with their mm -hmm. projects? Well, the first point, I'll start with Locke. The first thing I'll mention is that, remember, he was a medical doctor and so his take on the scientific method, that it's empirical, that we're going to look at cases. We're not going to start with theory. We're going to start with observations and experience and build from there. So we're building up. We're not going to start with theory. So for Locke, he's really the first person that, that focuses primarily on how the mind works. So he's the one that really starts this project of, okay, Descartes said the mind is important, and he started with the mind, but I'm going to ask, what are the operations of the mind, and how does it work? So I would say that's his biggest contribution, is he's really the first one to address that primarily as the issue to be investigated, because what we can know and how we know it is determined by the operations of the mind. So what the mind can do and not do is largely the answer to those questions. So in a sense, he's very much taking a scientific view of how we're going to do philosophies. In other words, our understanding of how the mind works is going to put sideboards on philosophy here. So that's huge. For Berkeley. He's probably the first person to really get at and understand how vision works. But his purpose is not to advance this new science, per se, if science is understood in this idealistic, from God perspective, yes. But Barclay is just driven, opposed to any of this material, mechanical science that's operating. So he's trying to put the brakes on this whole project in many respects. Newton is very successful because of his mechanical approach to things. And how does Barclays, by making it so that we're no longer dealing with mechanics, how does he envision that working out? Right? You've had the success of a mechanical approach, what is he thinking that needs to get done there? Well, just a realization that that was just the pattern that God used in setting this up. Yeah. So in his mind, I think that's the way he would respond, is sure there's a pattern there, and you can look at it as if it's forces, but yeah, it's ultimately God that's moving all this stuff. and putting it in its orbit. It isn't gravity. Mm -hmm. It's not caused by gravity. It's yeah. caused by the mind of God. Yeah. Would we... Well, let me ask this question this way. That sounds in a modern take on what science is. That's a almost anti-scientific way 
of looking at the issue. Do you think that's... Which, which are you talking about Newton or Barclay? Barclay. Certainly. But as an ecologist, I would also argue that's true of Newton as well. Yeah. Is just to take a universe and to solve it by breaking into its parts, solving the part, mm-hmm. the forces interacting on a part and saying that's the organization of the universe. That's the antithesis of the science of ecology. Ecology is starting with the whole, mm-hmm. not with the parts, yeah. and, and building the other way. Yeah. So yeah, Newton represents the best of what I would call the science of the enlightenment, meaning we're going to take any problem, break it down, and when we break it down, now we break it up into solvable pieces. For example, technology does the same thing with Smith's pin factory. We take the pin factory, break it down into little steps, and then we can build a machine for every one of those little steps. Right. Where to build a machine to do all 18 steps, we can't get there. It's this Newtonian view that will, it's mechanical and will yeah. break it down into its pieces. That's science, and that's how we're going to solve and complete the project that Bacon said, how we're going to take control of nature and use it for our own uses. Right. Now, Newton is slightly moderated by his I feign no hypothesis, right? There's a piece of this, at least, that I can't account for using this Mm -hmm. sort of break it down, right? right? There's this thing, Mm -hmm. right? There's gravity. What is gravity? Gravity is actually a mathematical description of something. Mm -hmm. He says, I don't know the causes. Yeah, I don't know what this is. And that... For him, that's not the important part of right. science. The, right. That's not a scientific question necessarily. Right. The thing that I am trying to do is explain mm-hmm. how things are. Mm-hmm. So in, in Barclay's picture, we, are we stepping back from the... Let, let me back up. One of the ways that science is framed very, very early on, uh, I believe it's Abelard, is writing to his nephew, and his nephew makes a comment about rainbows, and he says, God put the rainbow in the sky as a covenant with Noah that he wouldn't destroy, and Abelard goes, that's true, but... When I ask you what's the rainbow, the kind of explanation I'm looking for is he doesn't have a, this is in the Middle Ages, so he doesn't have the same perspective that we have about the prismatic alteration of light because of water droplets and all of that sort of thing. But that's the sort of explanation that we're looking for as we are asking a scientific question, quote unquote in our modern sort of conception of things. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Barclay, by refocusing the issue on the metaphysics of the mind, is being more scientific than that perspective? Like, which inclination? Do you understand the question? This is a- well, it's a really complicated answer. I can think of several ways to go about it, but I'll just try it this way. So yeah. I, I'm just talking off the cuff here, so we'll see where it goes. 
It seems to me ultimately that what science is first a description of patterns. Right. And then secondly, is there a cause or an explanation for those patterns? There is a sense in which I think Berkeley really is onto something here. And that as a Christian, if God created the world and put it together, and in, and in my understanding of it, is moment by moment keeping this thing going. And if anything happened to God, it would all instantaneously evaporate. Right. In that sense, my picture is not too far from Barclays. Right. So if science is understanding the patterns and understanding the cause, then I can see Barclay, I'm pretty sympathetic to Barclay's position. Right. Now, the other side of this issue is, though, but that really isn't a satisfactory answer as far as understanding and wanting to manage and control nature, because it's, how do I know the mind of God? I, I can't do right. that. But what I can do is look at the patterns. Right and then understand the patterns. Right. And now, either in Berkeley or the material perspective, because <laughs> both will work, but I can investigate the patterns here and try to infer causes. Now, yeah. Berkeley would say, nah, that's crazy. But it seems to me that that rightfully understood you could see that as being science as well, that, that right. both those things could be considered science. Right. Part of it is what level of analysis mm -hmm. are we working at? Right. What am I trying to understand about right. reality? And the answer about God put the rainbow there, that might not be answering the question that I'm asking. Right. And as hmm. such, is a little bit disingenuous. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that Abelard, I think, is trying to get at, is yeah. he's saying, answer the question, though. Right. Because I didn't ask you right. this sort of ultimate question. Mm -hmm. I asked you a more immediate question. And we might not know the answer to the immediate question, right. but it's legitimate to ask that immediate question. Yes, it is. Yeah, and as I say, just trying to give the answer here is as both containing a Barclayan perspective and essentially a modern science perspective. Right. Because in the end, both are plausible. Right. To a certain extent. We can argue whether well, ultimately— Well, I, I think part of the reason why we are bigger fans of Reed than uh, we are of Barclay is because— Reed highlights things as we have, as we talked about when we did the episode about science, mm -hmm. right? Reed offers reasons why it is a better judgment mm -hmm. to think that there is a material world mm -hmm. than that there isn't one. Yeah. The truth of whether there is a material world or not mm -hmm. is important, right. even if the impulse that Barclay is bringing to bear right. is a good one. Yes. Yeah. I have to force myself to leave the Reedian thing out of this as yes, much as yes. I can. Yes, yes. So that's why I'm hedging right. here of but, sticking with Barclay. But that when we come to somebody who is approaching a problem out of a good impulse, mm -hmm. right, that should not keep us from recognizing that was a good, that was a good impulse. Right. Even if in the particulars, it turns mm -hmm. out that doesn't actually hold up. Uh-huh. 
Well, see, and I would make that case against Reed because he's accepting Newton's view of science. Right. So, but anyway, that's a whole nother story. Sure, sure. (laughs) And sorry to uh, put that spoiler in there. (laughs) It ends up being very complicated in sorting out the truth of all of this. And somebody can have clear perspective on a given question and have it tangled up somewhere else. Right. Oh, yeah. And that's why we read more than one person (laughs) as we go through the curriculum here at Gutenberg is because it's a big project to think about reality. And there's a lot of pieces to thinking about reality. And it takes a, a lot of time or just a lot of different people thinking about a problem to start to get a handle on that problem. Mm-hmm. Let's wrap up with Locke and Berkeley. So we've talked about their major ideas. Mm-hmm. We've talked about their approaches to who their opponents are, and we've talked about how they viewed themselves as contributing to, if not the scientific project specifically, then at least the furtherance of truth. Mm -hmm. Are there any more details about Locke and Berkeley that you think are important as background to the rest of the epistemological project that our students read in the curriculum and that we'll be going through the podcast as we get into thinkers like Hume and Reed and Kant. Mm-hmm. I, I think the important elements are for Locke, he essentially looks at Descartes and says, I want an empirical framework for the mind here, and I want a mechanical and then this reductionistic model. Why? Because he's thinking like Newton. So that's what I want. And that's important because we'll see that even Hume, and to a certain extent, Reed in his understanding of this project says, yes, that's what they were doing. So Locke sets that project. So he's setting the project as far as English-speaking Anglos and Americans. So that's his important role here. What I would say is Barclay's contribution is, yeah, but there's something in this kind of thing like maybe a Trojan horse. And because the problem is here, an idea doesn't resemble matter. Right. And so how is it that we have ideas of the material world? Now, it's an outlandish thing to, to raise, but it's what leads to Hume. Right. And that, I would say, from an epistemological standpoint, is Berkeley's role here, is he's pointing to something that turns out to be the Trojan horse. And you were alluding to, and maybe this is something that we will need to talk more about once we've gotten through talking about Hume and Reed and maybe even Kant in this podcast, is because everybody is accepting the Newtonian picture of what you called enlightenment science, right? Mm-hmm. The way we're going to figure it down is breaking it down to its simplest solvable bits mm-hmm. and then working backwards. Even though Reed's 
particular insights about how the mind works might be superior to Barclays. He's still buying that mm-hmm. as the framework for what he's doing. That's correct. And, and so Barclay may, at the end of the day, have a better overall view of science if he's still wanting to account for a whole rather than breaking things down into those parts. Maybe, but as I say, that wasn't their issue, so that's pretty speculative. But yeah, but maybe. But maybe that is something that could orient us to a better way of doing science than maybe we've been left with. All right. Charlie, thank you for coming on and talking about Locke and Barclay. Hopefully that's good background for everybody as we're moving forward in what has turned out to be a quarter about epistemology. Thanks for coming again, Charlie. You're welcome. And we will be back in a little bit to continue talking about the books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. <laughs>